A soul is an ineffable thing. It cannot be seen or smelled, but your senses detect evidence that it exists. A smile, a zap, a kinesthetic or verbal thick, a way of walking the peculiarly human brightness in someone's eyes. We are not androids, all of those things come together to say. We are not manufactured things. We are organic and singular. We are human. By the way, now you are listening to the Out of the Context podcasts made by Inksat Applications. Your host is Matthew Holland, and I'm here today to co- talk about the book called The City We Became. Okay, so you can see the contours of the city's soul in its skyline and dusk. You can hear its soul in the ambient chatter of the Chinatown, the musical haggling in its sock. You smell it on its buses, and you hear it creak beneath your boots as you ascend the five flights on your walk up, arms burned with the grocery bags. The way a city affects, attacks, adores you all captures in the way you utter its name. The City We Became is the first book in Jameson's Great Cities trilogy. The city in question here. New York, the We, its six avatars, the flesh and blood and magic embodiments of its soul. When the novel begins, New York City has not yet been born. It has its skyscrapers and bodyguards, its cops and its artistic directors, its three-piece suit Wall Street hustlers and its East New York corner boy hustlers. It is a New York City recognizable to anyone live alive in 2020. But at the book's beginning, New York City, as much as history has dubbed its a megapolis, it's a collection of strangeness of people coming, going and living parts of themselves on their way through. That residue, mixed with the essence of the life still in those streets and apartments and jails and office buildings, forms a weight of the world and becomes connected to somewhere qualitatively others. Its slums, its construction, its traffic, the music blasting from boomboxes, this begging to take an anthropomorphic shape. Listen closely enough to the stop and go of vehicles in the Holland Tunnel and hear a heartbeat. But New York City's birth is troubled. In fact, an attack of the city of a mysterious antagonist nearly results in a miscarriage. But the city's midwife, a nameless black urchin, beats back the menace barely surviving the fight. After the city whisks in a beaten hero, savior and avatar to safety, the boy's mentor, a protective urbane rough-edged man Paula, must seek out the other avatars, all of whom are injuring their own birth pangs. In her last novel, Jamison literalizes many of the themes we have associated with cities. Their oppressiveness, their dynamism, their heartlessness, their comfort, their wrongness, their rightness. But also the idea that the city's most fundamental components are the people in them. It's an ironic reflection of the maxim that good world buildings is not so much about the world as it's about the people moving through it. Each of the birds takes human from a surprising yet this makes sense fashion. And through these personifications, Jamison explores the contradictions and complicated appeal of the city she calls home. Bronx attitude and attendant lack of trust to others, Queen's status at the landing pad for refugees, Brooklyn's marriage of hip-hop and high politics, Staten Island's resentment at being the forgotten bro and racism that swims in its air, Manhattan's charters and complicated amalgamation of faces and races as well as its capitalistic impellent. 
Of course, having a single person embody the heterogeneity of an entire borough leads to broad generalizations. There are only so many characteristics that can be picked and assembled into a character before an author misshapes their creation into some chimera of Mr. Potato Head homunculus, a total less than the sum of its part. Taking a bunch of human souls, scale them up by the hundreds of thousands, the millions, and what appears on the page can only be incomplete. Still, Jameson manages to be managing with the impossible task, with a plump and demanding critical laugh. This is a trap we set for ourselves and we talk about the character of a place. This conundrum, how to personify a city, vanishes with regard to the book antagonist. In our opposite number we have the same, a person embodying a city. But two factors allowed for Jameson to avoid the risk of souls collapsing. The first is that the antagonist adopts many human forms, taking many cases, casting themselves as an ever-present and thus even more threatening villain. The second is that this villain, or at least a major aspect of them, already has an author. H.P. Lovecraft lumps large in this novel. References explicit and implicit abound, etc. In August of 1925, Lovecraft wrote the story The Horror at Red Hook. More as creed and a narrative, horror follows an Irish detective named Malone as he investigates a sinister cult led by their crew's Robert Sidem. Malone's investigation brings him in contact with the what Lovecraft characterizes as New York City, squalid unbearably, a hell on earth that serves as a portal to an actual hell. A place of knighted crypts, those titan arcades, and those half-formed shapes of hell that throws gigantically in silence holding half-eaten things, who still survive and persons screamed for mercy and laughed with madness. The Red Hook of Lovecraft's story is a maze of hybrid squalor, and description of its denizens is nothing more than a register of stars. To call the epithets and xenophobic portraits captured in this catalog evidence of the author's omnidirectional prejudices would be to indulge in criminal understatement. Lovecraft looked at the non-whites of the Brooklyn where he lived at the time and had visions of the demonic. The racial admixture of the New York City that has, throughout its history, been the agent of so much of the city's charm and dynamism maddened Lovecraft. A common dramatic device in Lovecraft's work is to associate virtue, intellect, elevated class portion, civilization and rationally with white Anglo-Saxons, often posing in its contrast to the corrupt, intellectually inferior, uncivilized and international, which he associated with people he characterized as being of lower class, impure racial stock and or non-European ethnicity and dark skin complexion who were often the villains in his writings. Lovecraft's wife, Sonia Green, a Ukrainian woman of Jewish extraction, was not except from his bigoted peak. Whenever we found ourselves in racially mixed crowds with characterized New York, she wrote after divorcing Lovecraft, Howard would become livid with rage. He seemed almost to lose his mind. Similar to Victoria Lavelle, the ballad of Black Tom, the city we became is a reclaiming of the New York that Lovecraft will field. And perhaps the greatest fuck you to the man behind the Cthulhu mythos then has had such widespread influence on speculative fiction, Jimmy Sin gives voice and humanness to the objects of Lovecraft's hatred. 
The censors is moved, the periphery now the mainstream, and the despised now the heroes. The city we became is a praise song for all the things he despised. The very first line of the book is I seen the city. Lovecraft, the er villain, lurks in the novel's shadow. So does another begoated imp made flesh hover over the city, a man who dwarfs even Lovecraft's capacity for enacting his prejudices in apocalyptic fashion on those not like him. Robert Moses. As much as we may think of cities as organic things thrummed with life, they are manufactured entities. The Roman Empire's aqueducts and forum romanum, the construction and organization of madrasas in Askia, Mohammed e Timbukta, the brutal opium war, fueled foraging for the Kwulun Peninsula in the Hong Kong. Capitalism has bludgeoned many of the aforementioned and other like in them into what we see now, and these deleterious effects are not absent from Gemini's novel. In fact, one of the most stunning features of his book is its positioning of capital waging war against humans being as a place of the sort of Cthulhu. Gargantuan claws the track expressway through neighborhoods, multiple human forms insinuating themselves piecemeal as appropriators of new coffee shops, or as real estate developers, or as disembodied city agencies expropriating land for canvas the source of mankind constant, subconscious exity, commanding perhaps the largest cult in the world. Few people have done more to bludgeon New York City into a place where skyscrapers have essentially placed a praise point on the sun that Robert Moses. Moses was the president of the Long Island Parks Commission from 1924 to 1963, chairman of the New York State Council of Parks from 1924 to 1963, commissioner of the New York Department of Parks from 1934 to 1960, chairman of the Tory Broad Bridge and Tunnel Authority, predecessor to the Metropolitan Transit Authority from 1934 to 1968, a New York Planning Commissioner from 1942 to 1960. Among the other things, at one point he held enough titles simultaneously to shame Daenerys Targaryen, all without once being elected to public office. As detailed in Roberta Sarah's Moses biography, The Power Broker, Moses used a budget surplus from toll revenue to place himself at the center of a vast web of patronage, creating public authorities that snuck him out from under the auspices of elected officials and the general public. Thus, at Donos, he built 16 expressways, as many parkways and 7 bridges within New York City alone. He disdained public transit and believed in the primacy of the automobile. The Belt Parkway on the Brooklyn and Queens waterfront separates residents from the New York Bay and Jamaica Bay. The Henry Hudson Parkway sits like an asphalt gash between the riverfront and the rest of the island. Our passes on Long Island were built just low enough to keep buses filling with non-white residents from beachfront state parks. Knowing this, it can be difficult to look at the Cross Bronx Expressway and not see traces of the animus that powered its rampage through the communities that dared to stand in its path. Also part of his legacy are Central Park's Guide, expensive tavern on the green and highly published effort to the end of the city's most hallowed traditions, Shakespeare in the Park. A New York City undersike from capital and gullish whims of little men with outside power in a New York City under the treat of forces dimensionally other. It is also a New York City uniquely equipped to fight back. 
In the city we became, as in the real life, the fight back, it dies. Nobody makes fun of my family but me energy thrums through the navel. When a city constituent parts are made in the flesh and blood and magic people, the term character defect takes on new meaning. The novel does not posit that, absent all those elements of the city that make life difficult. Resist police, luxury condos, rising subway fare, etc. New York would turn into paradise on earth. It is not a Shangri-La, it is not an Eden, it is New York. It has withstood Robert Moses. It has withstood other countless attempts to undermine or destroy its structural integrity. The bodega persists. The local art center almost wholly depends on outside grants that persists. The crush of the bodies in the subway car that persists. The gridlock on the FDR that persists. The rigaton blasting from books as that persists. Hip hop persists. Dollar slices persists. The idea of the New York City as home as that place where, in the words of Egyptian novelist Nagub Manhus, all your attempts to escape cease, that persists. Tulhu has tried innumerable times to destroy New York City. It has taken many forms. And yet, New York City persists. The New York outside the novel is leading with horrors. Income inequality manifests in empty apartment buildings and a titanic homelessness problem. A crooked subway system grows more wondrous and odious with each passing year. Attend any number of local town halls and public education in the city and witness some of the Brock Bindendian resistance New York City schools Kankilo Rickard Carranza has had to face in his efforts to desegregate public schools. Gentrification and the city's privacy, coupled with all of this way racism infects its public and private institution, all come together to present a bleak future for the city with bloodshot eyes. But Jemison is at work unveiling a new future. In the city we became, readers are shown in New York beyond the tunnels and bridges and roads named after men who no longer exist. She shows a New York, not of unmade communities, but of a remained ones, that scar tissue stronger than unbroken skin. New York City may be perpetually under attack, but it is always fighting back. Har, and you should hear its heartbreak. The city we became is available over the From Orbit books, and the novel is an expression of Geminism short story as a city born greed. The article has been taken from a tor.com website, and we would appreciate that hard work on creating that scientific article over the book. Your host was Matthew Holland. This was Out of the Context podcast. Do not forget that the podcast is provided thanks to the Inksot applications, Inksot notes, Inksot calendar and all the other apps you should definitely take a look at, use them for reading the books, use them for organizing your workday, workspace, etc, etc. And I'm pretty sure that you definitely will like it. Do not forget to take a look at the, the City We Became novel by author N.K. Jamison. And I would be really happy to hear you over the next episodes. The text was prepared by Toshi Onibuyoshi on the Tuesday, March 24, 2020. I'm Matthew Holland and I'm gonna meet you pretty soon. Bye.